Uh, today's message is God's justice. God's justice. And we only have one more chapter left, and then you can say that you officially went verse by verse through the entire book of Zechariah. So that's pretty exciting that we did that this school year. I really believe that that was the word that the Lord gave me in our prayer and fasting. I've been tremendously blessed by it. I've never um, inductively studied a prophet before in the Old Testament, verse by verse. So I was just challenged to go back and really look over commentators and, and see what God was saying and, and really be encouraged by it, you know, because, um, you know, sometimes we, we look back on Jesus and when you see it from this perspective, they were looking forward. And the idea was Jesus was not an accident. Jesus wasn't an accident. Jesus was a planned Savior. Jesus was a prophesied Savior. Amen? And now, looking forward, what are we waiting to see happen? Revelation, you know, the second coming of Jesus. And if these men could wait as long as they did to see the fulfillment of Jesus, how much more should we be encouraged? to see the second coming. And so that's really what's been encouraging me because, I mean, just think about this for a moment as we kind of just take in the full breath of Zechariah. Imagine, you know, your nation being invaded, being conquered by the pagans. You've been in bondage for 70 years. You're now coming back to the homeland. You're struggling just to build a shed of a temple compared to what you used to have. I mean, you used to have like this beautiful temple like the Taj Mahal and now it's like you're basically just building a shed you know and still it's a struggle and there's no real victory and it's just you know kind of boring in a sense you know you're building what you have and you think it's exciting and those who are old enough to remember the other temple instead of them clapping and getting excited when they see the unveiling they actually start crying because they're so disappointed in what this temple looks like and then you have Zechariah coming on the scene encouraging the people and his encouragement is not just, you know, God is going to save Israel, but Israel is going to go through a whole other devastation. And the salvation then will come after that. I mean, can you just imagine that? I mean, you're just sitting here, you know, around 500 B.C. going, what? I mean, you know, imagine you ain't got one life to live, 70 years, and that's your life? You know, that's it? I mean, the shed of this, this little temple here. The best prophecy I have is that it's going to get terribly worse before it gets better, and then my Messiah comes. That's it. And it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. So all I'm going to do is just live this life, be a gardener, be a, you know, a shepherd, uh, you know, go to this shed of a temple, make my sacrifices, and love God, love my family, and get ready to die because I'll never see this come on this earth. I mean, that's literally what it was like for them back then. They might not have looked at it that hopeless, but really, that was their existence. But the, the joy that I believe they found in it was that they found that God was enough, that God satisfied, that God could, could be there for them in their every need, that God was a real God, that their God wasn't like the other gods of, of the nations, which were idols, but their God was ever-present. And so now, how much more do you think you and I, who are like stuck in this 21st century, we have 2,000 years of the past behind us, and now we're looking forward and we're seeing that we're actually getting close to the fulfillment of Christ, but yet it could be another 100 years. It could be. It could be. And now, what are you going to do with your life, you know? 
you know that it is going to get worse before it gets better. If the rapture doesn't happen on the time we think it is, we'll be around for a whole lot of persecution of the church. And as a matter of fact, it's already here right now. And like the last sign, uh, you know, before Jesus coming back is that they'll hate you everywhere. And, and so my encouragement is, from the book of Zechariah, is that God always keeps his word. And so if he came for the Jewish people in a manger and came to them, he will come back to us riding on a white horse. Amen? And so sometimes you can look at the day-to-day ministry, the day-to-day things you're going through, Sue Ellen, and you could just begin to say, you know what? Is this counting for anything? Really, what's the big picture? But when you look back at these prophets, you can see there's a big picture. There is a big picture. One day, Jesus will come back, and it will be a reality upon this earth that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Just like right now, think about it, it is a reality that Jesus came. His name is the most popular name in all the earth. His book is the most read book in all the world. His religion, His belief system is the fastest growing, most influential in all of the world. So that is a sign that He came the first time. Just imagine if that's how it was the first time as a suffering servant. Imagine how great it's going to be when he comes the second time there'll be no doubt in people's mind who jesus is what jesus is about because they're going to see him upon this earth for that a thousand year millennial reign and that's what we're talking about in zechariah chapter 13 is on that day this day continues from chapter 12 and today's message is god's justice so as you see on that day read it with me one two three On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and his mother, to whom he was born, will say to him, You must die because you have told lies in the the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. Look at that. You know, that is a tough day right there for you. Verse 4, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will, not pour, he will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I am not a prophet. I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer the wounds the the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say... They are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. Somebody say, God's justice. Amen. Thank you. When you look at verse 1, it says, on that day the fountain will be opened. This is what we believe of when Jesus comes back after the battle of Armageddon and makes his throne upon New Jerusalem. You can see this prophesied in Revelation, as we talked about last week, in Revelation chapter 19, after the battle of Armageddon. And when it says on that day a fountain will be opened, we can assume this to be the river of God, the Holy Spirit, a literal river flowing through the earth. 
Or we consider this to be a spiritual fountain, which is the fountain that flowed from Jesus' side, pouring forth blood and water, his redemption. Either way, if you look at the fountain being figuratively or literally, what that fountain does on that day is wipes away the sin and impurity of the people of Israel. And if you go right back up into chapter 11, uh, chapter 12 rather, it says that, they will be forgiven of their sins, Israel will be saved, and that they will have all of their reproach taken away. And if you look at chapter 12, uh, verse 11, it says, On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Rinnan in the plain of Megiddo, the land will mourn. And in and, and verse 10 it says, And I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Now turn with me to Romans 11:26, and you'll see this is the same exact thing that Paul is prophesying will happen to his people when all Israel is saved. Now, for more details on this, of course, reference back to last week's message. But the way we basically look at this is the, uh, the, the way we see it is there's going to be a rapture, the taking away of the church. There will then be seven years of the Antichrist. Three and a half years will be of peace when he makes peace in the Middle East. Jerusalem will rebuild its temple. But then the Antichrist will come against Israel. He'll sacrifice in the temple, bring the abomination of desolation, and then for those three and a half years, he's going to try to destroy Israel but not be able to do it because that's when the great tribulation is coming from God and all of his angels and the bowls of wrath. And then he takes about a hundred million man army against Israel. When he tries to destroy them, that's when the last trumpet sounds. Jesus comes and he has the battle of Armageddon, destroys the armies. The blood is as high as a horse's head and it runs for over 130 miles. Okay, on that day, Israel, who has now been spared, is going to call out on the name of Jesus and be saved. They're going to look on the one whom they have pierced, and there will be great mourning. And on that day, Jesus will give grace and mercy to them. And it's the same thing that Paul is looking forward to in Romans eleven twenty six. He says, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so what happens here in uh, chapter 13 is Zechariah continues, and as, as the commentators I was reading were saying, there shouldn't even be a, a, a chapter break here. There should not even be a chapter break. It should be all one chapter because you remember, the Bible wasn't originally written with chapters and verses. And so it's continuing the thought just from the, first, the, the verses prior in verses 10 and 11 and 12 of chapter 12. And it's basically saying that there is going to be a fountain of grace. How many have already gotten to that fountain of grace right now? Amen. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the blood of Jesus. Oh, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That was the song the old timers used to sing. And you see in verse 2, on that day, he's also going to do something else. He's going to banish the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more. And so from that point forward, no one is going to worship any idols. And a way to look at this could be right now, Islam is the most modern pagan religion. And so if you want to know what paganism was like in the time of the Assyrians, in the time of the Persians, when they used to have these false religions, you can look to Islam and it's very, very similar. And as a matter of fact, in studying Islam, many of their traditions, such as praying towards Mecca, what Mecca has as its central idol is called the Kaaba, a black stone of worship. All of these things actually predate Islam. These were pagan traditions that they had before Islam. 
Islam came along. And actually, Islam embraced them in the Arabic uh, regions of Arabia. Take, for example, their Hajj, going to Mecca, and Ramadan, 40 days of prayer and fasting. That was part of paganism before. And as a matter of fact, Allah was the name of the great pagan deity of that day. And so... What we believe is that when he rids the idols from that place, it may not necessarily mean the idols of Israel, but the idols of the Muslims that are now in Jerusalem. What you see is their uh, moon and the different things they put on top of their mosque, and the Dome of the Rock is in Jerusalem. And so this to me says that God is going to cleanse the Middle East of Islam, because that to me is the greatest form of idolatry in the Middle East right now, because we don't see the Jews. Jewish people worshiping idols right now. So how would they be cleansed of idols if it wasn't the idolatry of the land they live in, which is Islam? That's what I personally believe. Then he goes on to say not only will he rid the idols, but then he will begin to remove the prophets from the land who prophesy. And if they prophesy, saying the Lord has said, their mother or father will stab them. Now, what do I believe this to mean? Now, after the battle of Armageddon, the Bible says there's a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And that's Revelations 20. This is a thousand-year reign. Matter of fact, just turn there so you can see it. This is an interesting part of the Bible because uh, when we talk about the rapture, what we're talking about is people with glorified bodies living on the earth with those who have not been killed from the battle of Armageddon. And skipping forward just a little bit, when it says two-thirds shall be destroyed, one-third shall be saved, I believe that to be the population of the earth. So after the battle of Armageddon, a hundred million people have died, and after all of these curses have come upon the earth, like the blood of the lakes and the, uh, the, the burning of the, the, the vegetation from wormwood, the star that falls out the sky, basically what you have is two-thirds of the world's population being destroyed. So there's only one-third of the population left. Are you following me? Now, the one-third of the population left is alive. Uh, the ones that are part of that population are Jews. They're all saved. And the other part now, who just saw God come and destroy the army, guess what they want to do now? Get saved. But here's the part that just will kind of, you know, make you think a little bit. So now, let's say there's one-third of our planet, which would be two billion people. So there's two billion people. You know, there's a lot of Israelites, you know, whatever. Ten million of them are saved, and then there's two billion of the rest. Now, we as the believers, which there's probably going to be about a billion and a half of us, are going to be ruling upon the earth as kings and priests. But here's the thing. We're going to have glorified bodies. So this thing about that. That's what the theologians believe, that we'll be upon the earth with glorified bodies. So we'll be walking around, like how the Bible says, like gods. Not gods to be worshipped, but like the sons of God. When he said in Psalms, he said, you are gods unto these people. He said, I made Moses a god unto these people. What that means is a mighty ruler. We are going to be walking around with the, with the power of God, with indestructibility, with ultimate wisdom, and ruling over the two billion people of the earth. That's when the Bible talks about us having the rewards. And so those of us who have served faithfully will be ruling as those kings and priests, those who just said those bedtime prayers right before they went to, to, to heaven, you know, or those um, bedside prayers, rather, when they're in hospital rooms, they're going to be our janitors. So they'll be there with a glorified body. We'll be, like, we'll be like thief on the cross. Do me a favor. Go over there and get me something, you know. 
you know, just thinking about that just kind of makes you think how great God's plan is. But literally, that's what the thousand-year reign is. And so now, during that time, look at Revelation chapter 20. This is the way he says it will be. Look at this. Verse 4. Well, let's start in verse 1. This is just to bless you, just to encourage you. I mean, use your imagination. Some people have different interpretations, but sticking with the assemblies of God and how we see the thousand-year reign, this is pretty much how it is. Verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, holding the keys of the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So this idea is that Satan is bound thrown into hell, the abyss, and we can see it for those thousands of years, and we can see him being tormented. And then the Bible says that he'll be released after those thousand years to try to deceive those two billion people one more time. God will give those people a chance. And some people say, well, why would God do that? And, and the best answer that theologians have come up with is they never lived in a time of temptation of the devil. And so it's God's way of saying, like he gave to Adam and Eve, here's your choice. And now he's saying to them, here's your choice. And you might think to yourself, well, who would be retarded enough to have lived a thousand years on the earth with glorified beings, us the saints of God, seeing God, Jesus, rule upon Jerusalem, and the devil die? there tied up who would ever follow him but the thing is who would ever have followed satan out of heaven to begin with because there's something to do with pride and ego and who would have turned away from god in the garden adam and eve did so obviously there's something inside of people that still want to choose wrong and so when that happens we're going to see people choose his side one last time but keep reading so this is the thousand year reign he's bound up Verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who have been given authority to judge. And here, see, it says thrones. You know, and this is where we're talking about thrones. I mean, there's going to be kings and priests. There's going to be rulers. We're going to be governors. So there's going to be, you know, probably, you know, 5 billion people on the planet. Let's say 2 billion are of the, the, the population and 2 billion are the Christians. Okay, let's make them even numbers. And so we're going to be ruling. There's going to be governors. There's going to be mayors. There's going to be cultivation going on. Uh, I don't think there's going to be maybe buying and selling, but there's going to be things going on, and we're going to be ruling over them on these thrones as judges. I saw the souls who have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not the mark on had now received his mark on the foreheads or the hands. They came to life, reigned with Christ a thousand years. See, they reigned with Christ. So these were those who died during that time of tribulation. Okay? So watch this. This is why people say the rapture has to come first. So there's this rapture where those who are alive now and those who have died present uh, in the past, that's why Paul said those who have, pers- uh, who have gone before us will not, those who have, are still alive will not go before those who have already died. So this is what it means. Like Paul's already died. He's in heaven without a body. When that trumpet sounds, he who has already died first, him, Paul, is going to get his resurrected body first. These are all in heaven. They're going to come back down and then go back up. Are you with me? This is the rapture. Then us who are alive, we get transformed and go up, right? But during that seven and a half years, during that seven years, when people have been beheaded for Jesus, did they get their resurrected body? No. So now watch this. In heaven, there's only three people that have bodies. Jesus 
Elijah, and Enoch. No one else have bodies. All the rest of the people are souls and spirits. Are you with me? Now, after the rapture, everyone is going to have bodies except for those who are being beheaded as Christians during the time of the tribulation. Are you with me? So now, after the battle of Armageddon, they get their bodies. That's what it's saying right here. Then because of the word of testimony, they had not reached the the worship, the mark of the beast. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was ended. Now, what does that mean? That's saying during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ that if you did serve God and you died, your soul is in heaven, but not with the new body upon the earth. So they do not get to be raised from the dead. So it would be like they say, goodbye, I died, and they go down, and then whoop, they come right back to life. That's what would have to happen. Y'all looking at me confused. Y'all need to listen to what I'm saying. Can you hear me? Come on, listen to me. If they were upon this earth during the thousand-year reign, and they say, I love Jesus, they lived for 500 years. The Bible, the Bible says a baby will die at 100. And they lived, and they loved Jesus What would happen when they die? They come right back in their resurrected body? No. It says they do not get their resurrected body until after the thousand-year reign. And what happens after the thousand-year reign is the great white throne judgment. And so it says this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who take part in this first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Hallelujah. And then it talks about when the thousand years is over. Now go back to Zechariah. Lord, help me because this is not even the message. This is just an introduction. Amen. Come on, somebody say help him. Come on, somebody say preach it. All right, looking at Zechariah, going back to that passage, let's see if we can just interpret this now properly and understand it. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity. That fountain is either literally the Holy Spirit or figuratively of the blood and water of Jesus' side forgiving us. Okay, so there's forgiveness on the day of Armageddon for their sins. On that day... There's the banishment from the land of the idols. I believe that to be the nation of Islam and the, uh, the idolatrous ways that they've followed. And they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord. I will remove both the prophet and the spirit and the, and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone prophesies, they'll be put to death. Why? Because during this thousand-year reign, if you walk around and now say, God is telling me this. Come on and follow me. God is telling me this. You're going to be put to death. Because there is no reason for anybody that has not been glorified reigning as a priest with God to go around telling anybody they have heard from God. If it doesn't fit during the millennial reign, then when would this fit? When would there ever be a time when there's not a need for a prophet anymore? It couldn't be after the first coming of Jesus because the Bible says the Spirit's being poured upon sons and daughters. So some commentators said, well, this means the gifts will die out. That's what it says, that the gifts will go away. See, look how people will use an allegorical interpretation. It has nothing to do with the gifts going away. It has to do with during the millennial reign, you're, you're not going to live upon this earth and start prophesying and try to lead people astray because God is upon the earth. The kings and priests with glorified bodies are upon the earth. And if you do that, your own parents will stab you. Praise God. Hallelujah. Like when, uh, like when um, my man Phineas st- stabbed those people in the temple. Praise the Lord. And then like with Eli and his sons, when, when they were put to death, God said don't even mourn for them. Because you know what? There's a separation between family when God comes first. Amen? 
Now looking at verse 4, it goes on with that same thing. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will no longer put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a farmer. And that's what it's talking about. During the millennial reign, what are you going to do? You're going to be farmers. That's what the people are going to be doing. Well, that's rather, you know, we'll be ruling over those who are farmers, but that's what they'll be doing. So there's no need anymore for pastors. There's no need anymore for prophets. There's no need anymore for evangelists, any of those things. We are now the priestly class. There's, it comes back to a priestly class, and those are those who have served God, who have been glorified, and we are the ones who have the word of the Lord. We are the ones telling them. This is what God says. How do you know? Because I was dead. I lived with him for about 400 years or 300 years, whatever. And now I know. I talk to him all the time. I have a glorified body. See, I got power. Listen to me. That's what he says. Do it. Do it. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like this idea of this mystical, you know, like how it is now. Like one prophet says, well, I feel God telling me this and, and then God telling me this. No, it's like then the priests and the kings ruling with Christ will know exactly what God is saying. If anyone disagrees with them, they are to be put to death and they'll be ashamed for even trying to do so. Now, going on to this, the wounds that uh, was given me were from the, uh, my friends. Some people say that this comes from the wounds of Jesus speaking of that. Uh, that could be this, but um, more so it's talking about the prophets of those days who would suffer persecution, and then they would say, look at me, I've been beat up because I'm telling the truth. And then they're saying, no, don't lie, you got beat up because your friend didn't like what you had to say. That's the reason why you got beat up. Okay, so that's where I interpret that. Now going down to verse 7, 8, and 9, this is the more popular part of the, the passage, which we've all heard before, Amen. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, where do we see the striking of the shepherd? Where do we see that? Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Let's turn there. Dylan, please get a Bible. Go to wherever you need to go right now and get a Bible. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. <clears throat> How many, when I read that, knew that that was what it was talking about? <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew chapter 26, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 31, long chapter, looking for the verses. Wow, here it is. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now watch this, my friends. Who is striking the shepherd? Who is striking the shepherd? How many think the devil is striking the shepherd? Raise your hand. How many think God the Father is striking the shepherd? Raise your hand. How many think it's something else? Raise your hand. Good. It is God the Father. Somebody say God's justice. You see, in this passage, Zechariah is prophesying nothing that can, uh, can be put into his day. There's not one thing. No commentary can even come close to what this would have meant to the people of that day. This is a prophecy to the people of that day that Jesus, the Messiah, will be struck by the Lord and the Messiah will lose a part of his reign. Now, you could ask Jews today how they take this, how they saw it, but this must have been a mystery to them. Here, the shepherd of Israel, the one replacing the idolatrous leaders, the one that is truly the good shepherd, is now going to be struck by the Lord Almighty. Think about that. 
the good shepherd is going to get pimp slapped by the father. Struck. How does that make sense? Unless you understand Isaiah who came before. Now go to Isaiah 53. And this is where when people say to me, well, you know, if the Jews didn't receive Jesus, then Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because they knew how to wait for the Messiah. And that is not true. It's not like the Christians, listen to me. You guys, when you get to Isaiah 53, look at me. The way a lot of modern atheists and scholars try to, to tell you Jesus is not even the Messiah is one of the arguments is, is the Jews didn't receive him. So he was always just a rogue man on his own. He was just a revolutionary. He was, he was some type of an Essene, some type of a radical Jew, and even the Jews didn't receive him. And then what the Jews, uh, what the Christians did is they saw the life of Jesus. They said, okay, he started here and he ended here. And they went back in the Old Testament and found any scripture they could and said, now this applied to him. This applied to him. Instead of the literal meaning of the passage speaking for itself. Now, Jews say the same thing, and they say that's why we don't receive Jesus, because the scriptures that we believe are the, are the messianic scriptures, Jesus did not fulfill. And the reason why that they do that is because the messianic scriptures they're looking at are the ones all about the conquering king, conquering Jerusalem, ruling and reigning, right? Now, watch. When the atheist says... If he truly was the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish people would have received him. But since he wasn't, everybody goes back and pegs these scriptures on them. They then say that the whole Bible is false because the Jewish Messiah was supposed to come during the reign of Herod's temple. And that's what was prophesied, that he would come to the temple and cleanse it. And therefore, since that temple's already been destroyed, there can now be no Messiah. And it takes you... Uh, only a little bit to disprove that because the Jewish people were W-R-O-N-G wrong. They had the prophecies to understand. Isaiah came before Zechariah. So meaning, if you would have heard Zechariah's scripture about the Lord raising up a shepherd, because he himself, go, this holds your place in Isaiah 53, but just see the context of this. Go back to Zechariah, the preceding chapters, where he says, I myself will be their shepherd. Remember the two shepherds? Remember the message we talked about? The two shepherds? Zechariah. Look at chapter 11. And it says, chapter 11, verse 7. And it says, So I pastored the flock marked for slaughter. So he says, I pastored the flock. And so it talks about the shepherd being God himself. Now, when you think about that, you now have a shepherd that God himself is raising up. I am shepherding these people. And then in chapter 13, he's now striking the shepherd. Well, this is once again proof for the Trinity. It's not the father punching himself, right? I'm punching myself. So now you see the personhood of God. God is one being, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. So in one sense, great Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel. And then in another sense, he's striking the shepherd of Israel. Why? Because Jesus takes on the name of Yahweh. He takes on that same name. And so the Father says, here, I'm shepherding you guys, uh, you know, through Jesus. That's what he means, the Trinity, the triune God is shepherding Israel. And then later in this passage, 
That shepherd is being struck. Now, how would you have understood this? If you knew Isaiah 53, go to Isaiah 53, verse 10, talking all about the suffering servant, verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life, his life, a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Come on, somebody. So if these boys would have understood, but the Bible says their hearts were darkened because they were rejecting God. But this is why it's revealed to us, because we've come to Christ and we can see the Scriptures plainly. So this is what Zacharias prophesied, that the shepherd's going to come. He's going to be struck by God himself, but it's for the sake of redemption. Now, we get into the message. God's justice. God's justice. My friends... Isaiah 53.10 tells us who was the one putting Christ to death. Who was the one crushing him? Who was the one allowing this punishment to happen? It was God the Father himself. We so many times say, you know, it's the devil that sends us to hell. It's the devil's fault. No, it's not, my friends. God gave us the garden gave us commands. When we disobeyed those commands, he himself said, I will inflict the justice upon you. You will be put to death. Look at Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5. I think you'll find this scripture to be very fitting whenever you're preaching on the streets and memorize it if you can, even this week, and start using it and you'll see how wonderful it helps you. Chapter 28, verse 5. It says, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it fully. Well, how could he send the little, the little, um, the little son uh, in in, in Africa, the little people, what do they call them? Pygmies. How could he send the little pygmies to hell if they've never heard about Jesus? Because you don't understand justice. Hello. Think about it, my friends. Evil people do not understand justice. Why would the Muslims say, why would God strike his own son for the sins of others? That makes no sense. They say that would be like your one child doing something wrong and then you beating your other child because that child did something wrong. How does that change that other child? That's what they say. It makes no sense. The reason it makes no sense is because they are evil in their heart. And you might say, well, pastor, sometimes it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm not evil. But it only makes sense to those who seek the Lord. It says those who seek the Lord understand it fully. They understand the justice of God. That word in the Hebrew means sentence or decision they understand the sentences the judgments of god they understand the decisions of god now go to romans chapter 3 where it applies to you and i today in our lives and in our preaching romans chapter 3 talking about the sinfulness of mankind and all being under the weight of sin but jesus coming for us romans chapter 3 verse 25 and don't let me forget to go back to 
to Matthew at the end of this message about what Christ did for us. But go to Romans 3.25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Who presented him? God did. What did Abraham ask Isaac to do? Sacrifice his son. What was that a type and a shadow of? The father sacrificing his son. And then when he was about ready to do it, there was a ram in the thicket. And Jehovah said, I myself will provide the lamb. I myself will do it. Yahweh said, I myself will do this. Jehovah Jireh, I the Lord provide. That's what he declared to Abraham. So the Father loved the world so much, He gave His own Son. Why? For justice sake. For righteousness sake. To sacrifice His own Son. Look at it. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. Through faith in His blood. He did this. Who is He? That's the Father being referred to as God. The Father did this to demonstrate His justice. Because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice. Twice it said. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Our God is a righteous and a just God. The justice of God said that all sinners must pay with their blood and eternity separated from God. The justice of God says your sin demands payment. Your sin demands death. Your sin demands hell. You must pay. That's the justice of God. Justice in the New Testament, the Greek word meaning the concept of righteousness based on ethics, rationality, and law. The ethics, the morals of God, the rational mind of God, the law of God based upon His righteous precepts. These concepts we call justice because of God's justice. You had to pay. You had to pay. But then what did he do? He sent Jesus to be your shepherd. And he said, I am the good shepherd because I lay down my life for the sheep. And when it came, look at it. Go back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. When it came to Jesus' crucifixion, verse 31 of chapter 26, and Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. On that day when he got arrested, God the Father was striking his own son. As Isaiah was saying it, he was crushing him. Why? So that we would know that all of our punishment fell on him. Why did we scatter? Because it had nothing to do with us. When the sheep see the shepherd being killed, that animal can't do anything to help that shepherd. Your your little sheep self couldn't help Jesus. 
when Peter tried to pull up his sword and fight, he said, you don't even know what you're doing. If this was a battle between me and these people, my angels would come down and destroy them. No, this was between him and the Father. This wasn't between him and even mankind. This wasn't between him and the devil. This was between him and his Father. He had to go to his Father as Isaac went up that mountain to be sacrificed. He had to be willing to go up Calvary's hill so that his Father might crush him. So that his Father might pour out his blood. It was the Father's desire to demonstrate justice upon Jesus Christ. For God demonstrates His love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that we in Christ might become the righteousness of God. My friend, your salvation came through a Savior named Jesus who was struck by the Father for justice' sake. There is a hell because of justice' sake. Whenever you want to preach the gospel and talk about hell, always use the analogy of a man standing before court, admitting his own despicable crime, and then ask, is it right for that judge who has the pedophile in his court to say, go free without any punishment? Is it right for the judge to say to that murderer, you go free? No, somebody must pay the price for that crime. Because if that judge lets off that murderer, lets off that pedophile, then there is not justice. But Jesus. Come on, somebody say, but Jesus. Jesus. Going back to Romans chapter 3. But Jesus laid down His life for us. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And you keep going through Romans and you understand it's only by faith. It can't be by works because he took your penalty. You go to chapter 8 and how he gives you the law of the Spirit to put to death the law of sin and death and then you get to Romans chapter 8 and now this might make a little bit more sense to you it says in verse 28 and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose for God for those he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and this he predestined he also called and those he called he justified and those he justified he glorified now look at verse 31 What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He is saying, I gave my son to meet the requirements of my own justice. How much more would I not give you the things that you need in life? 
And look at verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those who have God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. Listen, why can Christ now damn every soul to hell? Because he says, I paid the price for you and you rejected me. There is no other salvation. He is the one who condemns. He is the one who judges now for his father. Why? Because it was by his blood he purchased the world's salvation. And if the world rejects him, and if the world lives in sin, he has the right now to say to them, you don't belong up here with us. But for those who call on his name, the Bible says he's interceding for them, even right now, as that sacrifice of God, as you see in Revelation, the lamb that looked like he was slain. The Bible says... He is before the throne of the Father praying as He did for Peter not to be sifted. He is praying for us that we will make it to the end and that we will be kept in His hands as the Father has promised that He will not lose one of them. In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Why? Why does He even need to ask that? Because as a Christian, you will suffer tribulation, you will suffer trouble, but there cannot be anything to separate you from His love because He's already fulfilled the justice of God the Father. Now all you have to do is trust in Him, my friend, and there's nothing that can come in your way. No devil from hell. No one could strike the shepherd except the Father Himself. And now that the shepherd has been raised from the dead, there is no one who can separate from the love of Christ. Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. For your sake, we face death all day long, considered as sleep to be slaughtered. Because we were, because we were with the shepherd, we're with Him. They persecuted Him, they persecuted us, but in all these things... We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Davi, He did it because He loved you. He saw you in your sin. He saw you with the justice of God against you, deserving hell. And He said, I love Him. Father, for Him. For Him. As a fountain to cleanse him for him. For Sue Ellen. For Vanessa. For us. And on that day in Matthew chapter 26, when he was beginning to be struck, Isaiah says, we all forsook him. We deemed him smitten of God. We said, there must be a problem because God is punishing you. It was true that God was punishing him, but it wasn't because of his problems. Yes, it was true he was under a curse because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, but it wasn't because of his mistakes, Ellie. It was because of yours. He took your curse. He took your strike from the Father. The Father struck him instead of you. And if you do not accept Him into your life, if you do not live for Him, His justice demands that the Father strikes you with all of His wrath and anger. If you do not come to the Savior, Jesus Christ, you will be struck with the full 
wrath of God. And who can save you from his hand? As you listen in the sermon of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, when you are struck by the hands of God, you will fall into a bottomless pit and you will no more be able to stop yourself from falling than a man falling off of a cliff, grabbing onto air. And the Father will think nothing more to strike you as you would to strike a mosquito agitating you as it sucks the blood out of you. You'll strike it without even a hesitation. The Father will strike you with this full justice and think nothing of it. And the world around him, the saved, the redeemed, will rejoice as he strikes you. As he strikes this community, we won't weep and say, oh, we're so sad. We'll rejoice that the justice of God has been dealt to this earth. My friends, knowing the justice of God, number one, we should be thankful of the salvation he gives. Never to become lackadaisical in salvation. Salvation is not the cherry on top of your American dream yuppie life. Salvation is not your Easter service and then go out and have a couple of beers with your friends. Salvation is a man, Christ Jesus, taking the strike of God on your behalf. And if you don't receive it, it is against you now. Be thankful for Christ. Gracias, Señor Jesucristo, for la cruz, for the cross. We thank you. Jesus, for the cross. There should be people in our services crying out as they did in the Welsh revival, is there room at the cross for me? Jesus, is there room for one more at the cross for me? And as the preacher would say, there is room at the cross for you. Come now as the fountain of grace and mercy is being poured out. Come now. Come everyone, every sinner, everyone who is in wickedness, every lost sheep, come now. Every prodigal son or daughter, come now while the grace and mercy flows from his side. There is room at the cross for you. There is room at the cross for people in Chicago. There is room at the cross for those in the nations, for those worshiping idols in in Hinduism in India and those worshiping the Muslim false gods. There is room at the cross for them. Number one, be grateful of your salvation. And number two, turn with me in Zechariah 13. Know that there is a plan for your life. That you may be sometimes disenchanted by the church. You may sometimes be discouraged by what is going on around you. Revival seems far off at times. The second coming may seem like just a fantasy, like, you know, uh, the Transformer movie. But I'm telling you, this is a reality. Look at verse 8. And the whole land declares the Lord two-thirds will be struck down and perish. Why are they being struck down? Because they're not with the shepherd. Imagine the full wrath of God being paid across this earth, being struck down. I mean, we have seen it before in, in movies, somebody being struck, and it just, ooh, it just hurts. Ah, oh, I can't believe that just happened. Imagine God striking down the earth. You see, he struck his shepherd first for judgment, for justice, rather, for justice. But then now he strikes him, the earth, 
for just judgment. There's no more time now to be saved. It's over. He says, but yet one third will be left. Now look at the plan, verse 9. This third will I bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver, test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is our Elohim. The Lord is our God. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. That is the plan, my friends. We will be with Him and He will be with us. Looking to the end of the book, come on, Revelation. Going to the last chapter of the last book, the great promise that God gives us of a new Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is after the thousand year reign. There's a great white a right throne judgment in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Then there's a recreating of the new heavens and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old orders of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters and all liars, Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Going on down to the the last chapter, chapter 22. Looking at it again, the coming of New Jerusalem. Then the angel of the Lord showed me a river of water of life as clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood a tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need of light or lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Verse 7. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy in this book. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what I have done. Verse 16, verse 17, rather, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift 
of the water of life. Would you stand with me, please? Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. He said three times there at the end, behold, I am coming soon. Verse 7, verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And in verse 20, yes, I am coming soon. Leilani, would you come, please? How many are ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus? How many are ready to see him face to face? His justice will be demonstrated upon this earth. My friend, he struck the shepherd so you would not have to be struck. Preach that gospel this week for the rest of your life. You know, but preach it this week with the new sense of what you have learned. That the father struck the son. He himself provided the lamb as he promised to Abraham. Why? To demonstrate his justice. And he's a good God. And he's a holy God. And what does that mean to us? That means whatever we go through, nothing can separate us from his love. Because there was only one thing that was ever against us, and that was the judgment of God, the righteousness of God. And now we're made right with that holy God. Let's just thank Him right now. Lord, we thank You. Just say thank You, Jesus, right now. Come on. Thank You, Lord. Just sing that out to the Lord right now, Lilana. Just thank Him. Just thank Him right now. Hallelujah. Jesus.